remember driving to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, because we kind of felt like God was maybe leading us there. And I remember looking as we crossed over Hickman thinking, it would be really cool to plant a church in Waukee. And he was like, yeah, but there's already a place that's planting a church, and we don't really want to go and try to plant another one, and that, that would just be weird. So I dismissed it really quickly, and we went, we went to Eau Claire, just didn't feel like God was leading there, came back really kind of discouraged. And a few months later is when Bob Stouffer called Dave and said, hey, we have this church plan in Waukee. Um, would you consider putting your name in to possibly be a pastor there? I was like, okay, that's really weird. <laughs> so God had planted a seed in our hearts for Waukee even before we knew why. Fast forward now, eight years, nine years. Um, in the last couple of years, as we have been ministering here in Waukee and the surrounding areas, um, God had kind of planted a seed in many of our hearts to have a facility that we could bring people together to live, love, and give like Jesus. And so we would keep going from property to property to building, and we would spend countless hours praying. We would stop our car and park on the side of the road, and people would, like, pass us by. we just pray, God, would you just give us this property? We'd beg God, please, would you give us this property? And he always said no. And so we started to grow a little bit tired of the no's, um, a little discouraged. And one day, as Dave was wa- watching out his window, as you've heard before, um, he kind of looked out, and he's like, what about that building right there, the one that you've looked at for, like, years? And so, and that's where we're at now, is God has planted that seed in our hearts, and watching his timing and watching how he's pulling these details together for the avenue, um, creating an avenue for where we can share the love of God in such a tangible way is awesome. So I'm excited to see how God is planting seeds. It's not always in our timing. Most of the time it's not in our timing, and that's frustrating because, you know, we like it. God, what about right now? But he's saying now, and it's so awesome to me. It's so awesome to see how he's pulling those pieces together in his right timing, and I'm so excited to see what he's going to do in this next year. All right, thanks. Thanks, Gorgeous. I appreciate it. I I, I switched hats. It's a hat-switching day for me, so I'm leading worship and preaching and doing all that. So if you're a guest here today, that doesn't often happen, but occasionally... That does. So that's, that's where we're at. And we're in Genesis chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 16. And so if you have a Bible, grab that. If you didn't bring your Bible, that's okay. Smartphones work really well. And uh, there are red Bibles around if you don't have a smartphone. So somehow get your eyes on the page to Genesis chapter 18 as we continue in our series uh, in the life of Abraham, looking at Abraham's journey with the promise of God. As we uh, prepare to start, I, I want to remind you 4440 is going on. So we said 40 days of prayer starting February 1st. 40 days of prayer for four minutes at four o'clock. So every day at four o'clock, if you're not getting a text reminder, the, the number that you can sign up there is right in the bulletin. You can read that, text the word yes to that number, and we will get you signed up to get uh, for these last here uh, uh, two weeks of the 40 days of prayer. Because before we go anywhere, we said we want to stop and pray. In March, we, we start really with Vision Proper Month, and that's why these t-shirts are rolled out today. Uh, last night, we met with our, our elders and our servant owners, or deacons. We all got together and prayed over the facility and, and handed out some of these t-shirts. 
And uh, we have uh, extras. So uh, Megan, I don't know where those t-shirts went. She set them out somewhere, or she will set them out in the back over here. And so you can grab one if you want a t-shirt and there's your size left. We got some leftovers back there. Grab them, wear it. We're excited to, to see this. Um, and the last thing that I want to say before we get dive into Genesis 18 is there's so much going on right now. We're moving at rapid pace, like Clarissa said. Sometimes God said, wait, 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 wait. And now he's like, okay, foot to the accelerator. We're moving. And so coming in April, uh, we are in, in preparation for, the, for a fall move to our new facility. We are, we are going to say goodbye to Prairie View School coming for the month of April, and we're going to move over temporarily to our church office on Sunday mornings. What this does is not only does it create a, an environment that's a little bit more conducive for us, but it also allows us to save some money. Uh, we spend um, 500 bucks every Sunday to rent this place and allow us just to, to set aside a little bit more money and, and save some money to go over and to, to use that space and Farrell's next door has graciously offered to allow us to use their space on Sunday morning for our kids' ministry, and we've got it all set up with nursery and our preschool ministry, and so we are ready to go, and uh, coming in the month of April, and so uh, the last Sunday in March is Easter, and then we'll jump over to the church office until September, where, uh, Lord willing, we'll launch into our new facility. All right, so Genesis at chapter 18. Uh, I don't know about you, but I like superheroes. Now, superheroes are the rage. If you've been following the Marvel franchise at all, like Marvel is making millions upon millions of dollars in superheroes. They're all the rage. But I've always been a DC superhero fan, and so uh, I've always liked that. I appreciate some of the, the superheroes that come out. But here's one thing about superheroes, Marvel, DC, it doesn't matter, is one of the things that we love about superheroes is that they tend to be one person against all odds. One person who is like the minority for justice stands up in a very dark culture. Like, so you look at Batman here. We got a great picture of Batman. And, uh, you know, he's one man against all the evil of Gotham. Or if you look at Spider-Man, we got one teenager against an onslaught of villains. Or, or not to be outdone, one, the Wonder Woman movie is coming out this summer. I don't know if you like Wonder Woman, but uh, Wonder Woman is an Amazon warrior. A princess who was designed to save humanity, but her fellow Amazon warriors turned their back. And Wonder Woman stands alone to protect humanity. Alone. And then, of course, my favorite is Superman. And uh, one baby escaping the planet Krypton, coming here as an alien amongst us, the only one of his kind, all alone. Superheroes have this similar theme. They're all alone against an onslaught of evil. And uh, upon discovering their superhero powers, usually our superheroes are faced with some sort of evil. And they'll respond initially with, I'm just one person. What can I do? Again, as they're discovering their powers. What difference can one person make? I'm not important enough to make a difference. And then, of course, our superhero breaks out and we see the difference they can make. I just sometimes wonder if you and I ask the same kind of question. What difference in this culture can one person make? What difference... When there is a minority of people, it seems, standing for what is good and right and godly, what difference can a minority of people who pursue righteousness, what difference can we make? And as Christians, we're forced to ask this question. Can a godly 
righteous follower of Jesus make a difference in a world that seems increasingly opposed to Jesus? Can one righteous, God-fearing follower of Jesus make a difference for the kingdom of God? Can you have an impact for the kingdom of God? Can I have an impact for the kingdom of God? And of course, I want you to, I'm spoiling it, but the answer is yes, you can. All we have to do is look back in the history of the in modern history. All, you know, if you go all the way back to the 1500s when Martin Luther, one guy, one little monk, posted 95 theses on the castle door of Wittenberg saying, in, in, a, in, a, in essence, I'm going to stand up to the abuses of the Catholic Church at the time. I'm going to stand up to the abuses of the church and make a difference. Or you look at a guy like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorites, one of my favorite theologians in Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood up to the Nazi regime and said, this is not what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Even Martin Luther King Jr. in our own culture here presses for a change of culture in a way that represents the kingdom of God. Or someone like Mother Teresa in India laboring away in obscurity with those who need the tangible compassion of the kingdom of God. Sometimes it feels like as follower of Jesus, we're just a vast minority with very little influence in the world, and we're living in a culture that in some ways seems diametrically opposed to the teachings of Jesus. And if you feel this, if you have ever felt like this, sometimes in the political season, it's easy to feel that way. You know, uh, whether you attach yourself to a, a Democratic candidate or a Republican candidate or an independent candidate, and you feel like that candidate has a hope for our culture, and yet sometimes you think, yeah, but what difference can I make? Sometimes it's easy to feel like we can have no difference. One of my favorite theologians, I quote him often in this series in Genesis, is a guy by the name of John Walton. He was my professor at the Moody Bible Institute, and he says this, the fact is, righteous people have always been and will always be a minority. Still, individually and as the corporate church, God expects us to have a kingdom impact in this world. And that is how we get today to Genesis chapter 18. That question takes us right to our text because we are going to see here how Abraham and his lot, nephew Lot are a righteous minority in the world and we're going to see how they tried to live with kingdom influence even though they were vastly outnumbered. There are three movements that we're working through today in the text. There's three movements to this story. In the first movement in the last half of Genesis chapter 18, we're going to see Abraham have a conversation in which he bargains with God to not destroy the wicked city of Sodom. He bargains with God. In, in the second scene, we're going to see two angels go into the city of Sodom and we are going to see depravity at its all-time low in this city. A moral low of decay in the city of Sodom. And then the last piece, the last movie that we're going to take a look at is when Lot and his family escape the city of Sodom and escape to a nearby town. And of course, Lot's wife is turned into a pillar of salt. And as we look at these three movements today of this story, you may have read this before, as we look at these three movements today, what I want you to see is that a righteous minority can have a dramatic impact for the kingdom of God. So there's three kind of impacts I want to talk about this morning, and the first one might surprise you a little bit, but the first is a righteous minority can have an impact on God himself. 
A righteous minority can have an impact on God himself. All right, so last week we saw how Abraham hosted these three guys for dinner. These three guys were walking through, and we learned from the text that the, there's, this is the identity of the three men. Two of them were angels appearing in human form, and one of them was God Almighty appearing in human form, the Lord God. And so they, Abraham hosts them for dinner, and they get up on their way to go, and all three plus Abraham are walking together as, as the, the journey for these three guys continued. And two of, the, two of the men, the angels, they peel off, and they head down to Sodom. But one of the guys, God Almighty, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell Abraham my plan. And then God reveals, as Abraham and him are walking, that he's going to bring judgment, final judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham and God walk alone, and Abraham starts to think, I don't know about this. I mean, like a destruction of the city. Look at verse chapter 18, verse 23. Look what Abraham starts to say. He says, Abraham approached him, and he's talking about the Lord God. Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous and the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous and the wicked, treating the righteous and wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham starts here what is almost a humorous exchange. He starts this and he calls God's character on the table, not as if he's calling it into question, but he's saying, God, for the sake of your own name, if you find 50 righteous people in that city, will you save it? And God responds affirmatively. Yes, Abraham, if there are 50 righteous people, I will spare the long coming justice that has been coming to this city. I'll spare them for the sake of 50 righteous. Well, Abraham thinks, oh, this is great. I just had an influence on the Almighty God. But it is Sodom and Gomorrah. 50 might be a little too much to ask. And so Abraham starts this bargaining process with God. He says to God, uh, hey, okay, well, maybe 45. God, God, what about 45? If you only find 40, are you really going to destroy it just because, you know, we missed the mark by five people? And God says, oh, I, for 45, I'll spare it. Then Abraham thinks, well, 45 must be too much. Let's go with 40. And God says, once again, affirms. Abraham starts to think, you know, it is Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a horrible place. There's not 40 righteous people there. What about 30? Then he says, what about 20? Each time God responds, now Abraham realizes, okay, this Sodom and Gomorrah is really a wicked place. And 20 is probably even too much. But, I, I, I mean, this is getting annoying. And I know this. And so, God, please don't be angry with me. But for the sake of 10... And God says, yes, for the sake of ten, I will spare the city. Look at verse 32. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry. Let me speak once more. What if only ten can be found? And God answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. And Abraham returned home. What's fascinating about this is that Abraham through his request, had an effect or an impact on the Almighty God. 
Abraham, a righteous minority in his culture, had an impact with the almighty God. Now, on a side note here, what's up with God destroying cities? I mean, let's just, you know, let's like throw it on the table because this is not, this doesn't seem very cool. You know, sometimes we have a view of God that he's like the sheriff. You know, he's up there and, you know, and he's sitting out there and he's just blowing up things. You know, he's like, oh, I see you two shoplifters there. (laughs) I gotcha, you know, or, oh, I see the lie you told. (laughs) And he's blowing them away, right? You know, he's like, oh, your mom told you only one cookie and you took two. (laughs) We have this image of God as if God is some reckless sheriff just blowing away anything that he seems to seem is filled with sin or something he doesn't like. One of the most difficult concepts for us to understand is the righteousness and justice of God. And the reason that it's hard for us to understand this in our culture is because in our culture, we have become our own judge. In, in some sense, the inmates are ruling the asylum, right? We have become our own judge. We say, I am the one who determines for me what is righteous or unrighteous. In, in essence, it would be like appearing in criminal court and a judge is about to render his verdict and you say, excuse me, judge, I don't recognize your authority. I will determine for myself what my judgment will be. And I declare I am innocent. Thank you very much. And leaving. It's almost that absurd that we don't understand or grasp the righteousness of God. What we want is justice for everybody else, but not for ourselves. We want justice for those who have hurt us, for those who have done wrong. We cry out for justice when we've been hurt and we're wounded. We say, God, where are you? But we don't ask for justice for ourselves. What the truth is about God is that God is a God of justice. But God is just not out there randomly dispensing justice as his mood would dictate. God is patient. He's very patient. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, he had been patient for generation upon generation upon generation. And God is patient precisely because he longs for the salvation of people. Look at this verse in 2 Peter. It's one of my favorite verses where the Apostle Peter, talking about this kind of subject, says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Peter's talking here to a church that is crying out for God to do justice to those who are oppressing them. Instead, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We get a picture here of God's nature, that he is just, and rightfully so, he should punish wickedness. And yet he is patient upon patient upon patient because he longs for the salvation of people. God's compassion presses the pause button at times and gives people time to repent. And that's what Abraham taps into and ultimately what saves Lot. When Abraham appears to God and appears to, in our sense, bargain with God, he's not really bargaining. He's applying what he knows about God's patience and mercy to the situation. You and I, just like Abraham, can have an impact on God And this is one of the most profound truths that you can ever grasp. That you and me, little human beings, can have an impact on the almighty God of the universe. Because prayer really matters. 
Some would say, hey, why would I ever pray? Because God knows everything. He knows what's going to happen. Some would say he's foreordained everything that's going to happen. Why would I pray anyway? What difference will it make? And yet Jesus teaches us to pray because the reality of Scripture is that prayer makes a difference and has an impact on the Almighty God. He is listening. And what God does is he weaves us into his story. This is his grace. Did you notice that God invited Abraham into the discussion? God said to the angels with him, hey, shall I let him know what I'm planning to do? Now, God's not wondering, hey, should, I don't know, I can't really decide. Should I let Abraham know or not? God, whenever God asks a question, he's not looking because he doesn't know the answer. God's asking a question because he is inviting Abraham into the discussion. And so with you and me, he invites us. He invites us into his presence because we can have an impact on the Almighty God. The thing is, we tend to think about God um, in ways that we relate to our own parents or the way we parent. For instance, sometimes uh, I want a discussion with my children, and sometimes I don't want a discussion. The other day, one of my kids had a concert that they had, and I said to one of the other kids that was home, I said, hey, do you want to go to the concert with us? We're all going to drive down to Pella and see the concert. You want to go with us? And this child of mine proceeded to have a discussion with me about why this child did not want to go to the concert. What she did not recognize was that this was not a question, okay? This was a nice way of saying, get in the car, we are going together, and there's, I was not inviting her into a discussion. But there are other times where I do invite my kids into a discussion. I say if we're on vacation, hey guys, we got a free day today. What are we going to do? We could go to the pool. We could go to the beach. We could go to the park. What, what do you want to do? And we get their feedback. We get their input. My wife and I do. Because we're inviting them into the discussion. Did you know God invites you into a discussion? And it's called prayer. He cares and what you pray about makes an impact on the kingdom of God. Psalm chapter 34 verse 17 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. Righteous followers of Jesus have an impact on God. 4440 says, is, is our simple, there's the, the logo, 4440. We keep talking about this because you and I, as we pray about this vision of creating an avenue to bring people to Jesus, we have a real impact on God. That's why it starts with prayer. That's why we're not knocking on your door and saying, give us money, give us money, give us money. Jump in. No, we start with this simple idea that prayer makes an impact on the almighty God. A righteous minority can have a dramatic impact on God. But as we move to the second scene in this account, we see that a righteous minority also has an impact on a hostile culture in a hostile culture. The, she, the scene shifts as the Lord departs and Abraham goes back home. The scene shifts from Abraham's camp in Canaan down to the city of Sodom where Abraham's nephew Lot had decided to take up residence. If you remember several chapters ago in Genesis, Abraham and Lot split ways and Lot went down to Sodom. And Lot and his family lived in Sodom. And these two angels who appeared to be men 
walked in, and they arrive at the city gates. Now, you have to understand, in, in uh, ancient times, the city would have walls around it, and important business did not happen at City Hall. Important business happened at the city gate, and that's where important people hung out. That's where, as people came and left the city, people just gathered. And these two men come into the city, and Lot sees them, and Lot knows immediately when these two men come in, that this is not the city that you want to be wandering into as a stranger. And so Lot pleads with them to spend the night at his house. And they say, oh, no, 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 no. We'll just, you know, hang out in the center of town. We'll just set up in Central Park or whatever. And uh, we've got our tent and we'll be fine. Just leave. And Lot knows right away that if they do this, they are in serious danger. So he pleads with them to come to his house. And now Sodom and Gomorrah the city of Sodom here, night comes and evil is on full display. Lot has these two men in his house and everyone from the city, every man from the city comes and they start pounding on the door. And look what they say, verse 5 of chapter 19. They called to Lot as they surrounded the house. They called to Lot, hey, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. And we begin to see the depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look, Lot went outside to meet them. And he, and, and he shut the door behind him and he said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under my protection. Say What? Uh, all right, does that occur to anyone that that's weird? Like, what? You're taking these strangers and protecting them and offering up your, your daughters to the mob? Are you crazy, Lot? Okay, well, there's two possibilities of what's going on here. The first possibility is Lot looks at the situation. He knows how depraved and horrible the people of this city are. He knows they are looking to gang rape someone. And in that culture, you have to understand, protecting a guest in your home is of the utmost moral required honor. In, in our culture, we tend to elevate children to the highest status. So we think the most immoral people would be any child abuser, anyone to do something to a child. In that culture, the worst of the worst would be to host some, a guest, a traveler in your home, and allow something terrible to happen to them. So the first option that Lot is going is, we say, okay, Lot's going, what's the, both things are horrible and evil, but if I got to choose, I'm, I'm going to choose this one. I think the second and more likely option of what's going on here is that we, sarcasm doesn't often translate to, from Hebrew to English very well, and, uh, and we get sarcasm, right? Uh, imagine that uh, your home is being foreclosed on, and you're visiting with the, the, the bad person at the bank who's going to take your home, and, and they're, they're going through your stuff, and they're trying to repossess everything they can. And imagine you sarcastically say to them, hey, listen, why don't you just take the clothes off my children's back and let them run around naked? Well, it's sarcasm. You're not actually saying you want them to take the clothes off your children's back. To some degree, what could be happening here is Locke could be saying, listen, sarcastically, how evil are you? Would you even take my daughter's? Instead of these men, either way, what we understand from this situation, that Lot 
as, as a member and one experienced the covenant blessing of Abraham as standing for righteousness in a really, really evil place. Now, I, I want to take a side note because there, when we read the Bible, sometimes there's a lot of misunderstandings about what a text is saying. And uh, in fact, in this, whole, um, in this whole passage, oftentimes when people want to talk about homosexuality, they start here. And people have a lot, done a lot of harm and damage by starting in this passage. Now there are ways and a lot of biblical passages where we can talk about God's beautiful intent for sexuality and, and God's beautiful intent for marriage and all that. This is not the place to start. Because what essentially you do in starting at this place, Christians who start at this place hurt people. Because you make an assumption then that anyone, uh, who, uh, one sin is equated with the, the other. What God is telling us in Genesis here is not about one particular sin. What Je- God in Genesis is saying here is that there is a deep, deep brokenness to this city. And it is more about the willingness of these people to stand at the door and drag out strangers and rape them. And it is more about the overall horrible depravity than it is about picking out one particular thing and pigeonholing it. And what we do is we hurt people when we do that. And we can't. In fact, the very opposite point from this passage is that God is saying, uh, as a minority in this culture, standing for righteousness, we should protect people. Because that is exactly what Lot does. Do you notice how he does this? He stands in the gap and protects the visitors in his home. So many times Christians come to a place where they just throw people that they don't like out to the wolves instead of standing and protecting. Even if we don't like those people. I don't even know if Lot liked the two angels in his house that he was protecting. But he stood there and he protected them against a vicious mob. And as Christians, we're called to do this. This is how we have an impact on our culture is we say we are going to stand for what is right and protect people that need to be protected. If you're a follower of Jesus in 2016 in America, you can relate to this. Watch how Lot does this. Look in verse 6. He says this. Lot went outside to meet him and he said, "No, verse 7, he said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. He's warning them. He's standing. And then the second thing he does is you see he went outside and he closed the door and he stood between the vicious mob and his house. He put himself in between to protect them. Christians can make a difference by standing in the way of the mob and protecting people. When we stand in the way of evil and protect those who cannot save themselves, we are having a cultural and kingdom impact, even as a minority. There are countless applications. Throw out the big political ones for a minute, right? Just set those aside because it's political season and you can go a lot of different directions with that. But just think personally for a minute. How can you stand for those who can't protect themselves as a righteous minority? I mean, just think about this. Think about inviting someone into your home 
and offering them physical protection. Saying, you can come into my home and have a safe place to be. Thinking about helping a stranger in need. Or uh, as, as many in, in, in our uh, circle of Christians have done, just simply think about how uh, you can pull someone out of a system, a child out of a system that's broken and give them a safe place. You know, Clarissa and I have had many opportunities to do this over the years as, as uh, she's worked with a lot of teen moms and, and different people and we just said, come on in. You know, we understand that uh, you know, I'm broken and you're broken and we all have problems and mistakes, but right now, you come in and we're going to offer you a safe place, a place where we can stand and be an influence and have an impact for righteousness. And in a culture that would ignore those who, who are hurting, we stand for righteousness by standing next to the hurting. In a culture that's too busy to be bothered, we say, I will take the time to be bothered. In a culture that is obsessed with self-gratification, we put selflessness on display and live differently. In a culture that's divided and fractured over the issue of race, we say, I will stand next to someone who is different than me. In a culture that's about pursuing just personal pleasure and advancement, we say, I will be a servant at the bottom for the benefit of someone else. And we stand next to those who need protection in a culture. And that's how a righteous minority matters. In so many senses, hostility towards the cross is everywhere. But the way of Jesus calls us to something different. And you can be a righteous minority that matters. Lot is not perfect by any means. Lot has a whole host of issues. But he protects the messengers from God and has an impact in his hostile culture. We move to the third scene now. And the first thing we saw here was that God that a righteous minority has an impact on God, and then a righteous minority has an impact in a hostile culture. And now we're going to see the effects of a righteous minority. A righteous minority doesn't quit. A righteous minority has an impact even when others quit. And this is where we move to the third scene. We see Lot and his family escaping Sodom and Gomorrah. Because God says, I'm going to rain down fire and brimstone on these cities, and this is serious. And the angels tell Lot, okay, Lot, you got to get out of here. Like, you got to go now. And, and Lot says, well, I, I don't think I can make it all the way to the mountains. And Lot negotiates for a nearby town. He says, if I get to this nearby little tiny town, will you protect that town from this destruction? And the angels said, fine. They say, go, go. And he ne- negotiates it. Look at verse 22 of chapter 19. Verse 22 says this. Uh, Lot wants to go to a nearby small little town called Zoar. By the time Lot reached, uh, excuse me, the, the angel says in verse 22, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. I cannot do anything until you reach it. Okay, so uh, here's, here's, it's important to understand how to properly interpret this passage to get where I want to get to today, where the text takes us. When I, I, I've heard about this story since I was this small in Sunday school, you know, and, and, uh, and, and the picture that's always set for us is, is that Lot and his family are, are, are sitting there and all of a sudden fire and brimstone start raining down 
from the heavens, right? And so I always had this picture of Lot and his family like trying to escape and they're running on the road out of town while Lot's holding his raincoat over his wife so she doesn't get hit with, uh, you know, fire and brimstone, which obviously is silly, but that's always a picture I had in my head. Anyway, and so they're running on the, 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 uh, the road and they're running to, to this town to escape the fire and brimstone and all of a sudden, uh, like, like they're hanging out there and, and the coat comes off of Lot's wife and she turns around and looks back and she accidentally glimpses the city and whoo, she turns into a Morton pillar of salt. And then there's a little horse that comes up and licks on her. I don't know why that was in my head, but that was always in my head. So uh, this is the picture. But this does not, like, I don't know where the horse came from. It's just there. Uh, this is not the picture at all that is set in Genesis chapter 19. Something very different is going on. First of all, we need to understand that the angel said, I will not, dis- the, the, the destruction will not start until you have safely reached the town of Zoar. So there's not this escaping and a raincoat in, you know, and, and, a, and a horse. There's none of this stuff is there, right? Well, so what is going on? What is going on? Well, look at verse 26. We, we read this about Lot's wife there. Verse 26 says, Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Well, well, what's going on if they're not escaping on the road? Well, the first thing to note is the destruction didn't happen until they reached the city of Zoar. It didn't happen on the road. Jesus gives us some clarity of this in Luke chapter 17, when Jesus, as a good rabbi, offered his interpretation of what was going on. And I, I think Jesus is a pretty good authority to take what was going on here. He said, he, Jesus is talking about the full expression of the kingdom of God here, and he says, on that day, Luke chapter 17. Oh yeah, you got it on the screen. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. So what Jesus is saying here is that somewhere on the road between Sodom and Zoar, Lot's wife, she went back to Sodom. Now, this is Jesus' interpretation of this text. Lot's wife went back. So Jesus is saying, don't be like Lot's wife, not just because she turned around and, oops, glanced at the city of destruction, but because she went back. She didn't just turn around. And when you combine this, earlier in the text, I didn't get a chance to talk about this, but when Lot had a approached his uh, sons-in-law about coming with them. Uh, The Hebrew text is very clear that the sons didn't just laugh. They just mocked him. They mocked his opinion. And when you combine it with that, it's pretty clear what happened. Somewhere on the road between Sodom and, and Sodom and the little town of Zoar, before any destruction started raining down, Lot's wife started to think about her sons in law mocking Lot. And she started to think, you know, I liked our life in Sodom. That was pretty good. I liked it back there. Why are we running away from this? My husband is crazy. He's crazy. And Lot went back to the city, or Lot's wife went back to the city of Sodom. So when the destruction began, she was caught in the same destruction as all of the others. Now, I wonder what it was like to be Lot in those circumstances. He's now just with his two daughters in this small town, abandoned by his wife, feeling all alone for righteousness' sake. You see, the truth is, when you embrace the gospel, when you embrace this simple idea that Jesus shed his 
blood for your sins on the cross, that he defeated death through his resurrection, and that through that resurrection he inaugurated the kingdom of God. When you understand this and follow this, there are going to be people on this journey with you who don't make it, who at some point go, I'm tired of this, and I'm going back to Sodom. As they turn around, people will abandon you, It shouldn't surprise you when they turn their backs and quit. It shouldn't surprise you when people who have walked on this journey just give up. It shouldn't surprise you because living like Christ is often a minority approach. Fighting. To fight for living like Christ is sometimes a very lonely place to be. But not all alone. That's the promise that Jesus gives us. First of all, he promises that he will always be with us. Secondly, he promises that his church will prevail, meaning there will always be someone else following Jesus around you. You will not be alone in this. Uh, I think about when I was in high school. um, I had started a prayer club uh, as a senior in high school and uh, in, in, a, in a public school, and uh, this was a long time ago, and, uh, and I remember that prayer club, uh, we, we started it with about 10 kids, and it kind of worked up to about 25 kids, and it was in the morning before school, and, and, uh, and all of a sudden we got noticed from the principal that we weren't allowed to do a religious prayer club on campus. Now this was in the, you know, in the early 90s before there was some clarification on these rules, and so I remember most of the prayer club said, well, okay, we're done. But uh, I stood, I went in the principal's office, documentation in hand, ready to argue that, yeah, we could have equal access to the facility. And uh, just as a, I'm 17 years old, you know, I'm just standing from there. And it was so lonely. But I remember another kid from our school who also loved Jesus. Somewhere in this process, he came alongside me and he walked with me into the principal's office and he handed me some stuff and he said, we're going to do this together. And I think sometimes when we feel all alone because people have abandoned us on the journey, God in his mercy provides someone to walk on the journey with us. He does. And that's the hope we see in Jesus. And this is the promise of the kingdom of God. A righteous minority has a kingdom impact even when it feels like we're all alone. And even when it feels like others have quit because we can have an impact on God and we can have an impact in our culture and even when everyone else has left us. God uses people mightily in his kingdom purpose. And as you live righteously for the kingdom of God, it's important to notice this. It's important to notice this. Oftentimes, this impact is not immediate or flashy. It's not, uh, it's, it's not overwhelming. Sometimes we don't even see it. But the impact of a righteous minority over time, the promise is God will use that minority in his kingdom work that he's doing. I think of the power of time and faithfulness. So I came home to my house uh, this week, and, uh, and the Right above my garage, there's a, very, a big piece of, of vinyl that wraps some of the two-by-fours around my garage. And, uh, and all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, one of these p- wrapped two-by-fours, the, uh, the aluminum that wraps that two-by-four had just come, come ripping off and just was hanging off the side of my garage. And, and so my father-in-law is in, uh, 
in the siding business. Like, that's how he made his career. And so I just snapped a picture of it and sent it to him. How does that happen? Like, you'd think that someone would have to get up there and physically tear it off. And, like, my kids aren't 20 feet tall. Like, they would have had to get a ladder to do that. So I couldn't even blame them. I was like, how does this happen? How is this just hanging here? And he just replied one word, uh, time plus, or wind plus time is what he said. Something like that. In other words, over, my house is 10 years old now. Over 10 years, the wind whipping past our garage, digging into the grooves over time, finally worked it free. And I think that's a great illustration of, of how God's righteousness works. It doesn't work in a day or a week or a year or 10 years sometimes like we like. Sometimes it's over generations and over spanning multiple generations. But God's kingdom impact is at work. Even when others quit, it's there and it's working. And that's so encouraging to me. It's so encouraging a righteous minority like Abraham, like Lot, can have an influence, not because of us, but because of God working through them. Uh, I've told you this before, and I've shown you this picture before, but it's one of the most meaningful pictures that I have on my phone. It's my daughter, Kaylin. Uh, sorry, baby, it's your hand. You made the big screen. I should have asked you. I didn't do that. I'm a terrible person. Um, but she wrote this on her hand after uh, a sermon that I preached in December um, about being faithful. And, uh, and so I snapped a picture of it. It's on my phone. And every time I open my phone, I see that. That the point of this life is faithfulness, not flashiness. And that brings me such encouragement every time I think about it because a righteous minority can have an impact. Can have an impact through faithfully, for faithfully defending those who need to be defended by faithfully praying and having an impact on God himself. A righteous minority can be faithful and have an impact. This is how, uh, this is the challenge for us today as followers of Jesus, to be faithful, to be a righteous minority, to have an impact from the kingdom of God. I'm going to invite Bob to come up and pray for our offering this morning and, and close us in prayer as we, pretend, uh, as we prepare to, to sing one more worship song together.